Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Okay, so uh, today we're talking about uh, ideological definitions. And I'm going to start with everyone's favorite columnist throughout all of world history, Jonathan <laughs> Chait, um, who is part of a, like a number of liberal columnists or centrist columnists who have been contesting the originality of democratic socialist thinking. And so the latest, uh, shall we say, uh, argument from this crowd is that um, democratic socialism as expressed by, you know, people like Alex, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are really just New Deal Democrats. Um, but before we get into that, I, I think it's important to note that about a year ago, uh, the line from Chait, again, was that there is no such thing as neoliberalism within the Democratic Party, and that, <laughs> in fact, there are no um, ideological changes uh, from the 1930s to the, you know, 1990s. And so neoliberal is just a slur. And this new move implicitly recognizes the fact that the Democratic Party did, in fact, turn hard to the right around the mid-1970s. And the, you know, implicitly conceding that to go to the left is to return to a previous more left-wing tradition even if uh as we will exp uh, get into in a bit he is incorrect about Dead wrong. his sort of ideological uh, argument he's good at being wrong this is that's true. his yeah he's really really good at it it's his one of his favorite things it's his forte right and it, there should be a caveat maybe too as well about uh these terms, whether it's neoliberal, socialist, democratic socialist, social democrat, social democracy, we are not, as some might uh, not be aware that they're doing, but uh, we are not implying that there is one transcendent, eternal definition to any of these things, one correct understanding. As uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein teaches us, uh, meaning of words is dependent on the context of their use. And it changes, and there are kind of different, correct, if you will, definitions depending on the context. So we'll be just exploring ways that clarify our understanding of these terms rather than trying to pin down one definition that's correct. Yeah, right. When Lenin uh, was, you know, getting his start in the early 1900s, his, his party was called the Russian Workers Social Democratic Party. Right, yeah. Uh, and that, you know, became... You know, Soviet communism. Well, things change, but that's okay. Even good. Yeah. Um, so, what do these terms mean today, and how should we think about them? Is the question how how best to understand these these this confusion? It seems like there's confusion on all sides. There's confusion um, from the left, from the right, from people we consider neoliberals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean, and back in the day, you know. Social democracy and democratic socialism were like somewhat interchangeable. I think now there's a new kind of con uh, consensus that s social democrats are kind of a little bit more to the right, whereas uh, uh, or more they're closer to the center than the democratic socialists are on the sort of like more firmly on the left. And I think the big difference is that social democracy is all about basically just blowing out a whole completed welfare state to say you have your you know you have your old age pension you have your child allowance you have your paid leave for parents um uh, you have disability benefits uh and you know support for students the whole panoply of um institutions and basically to account for every category of people who, who can't work or have trouble working so that nobody falls into poverty and an important that this this will become clear later an important corollary of that is that 
on its own, each one of those things maybe isn't quite so radical, but if you have the whole thing finished, the completed welfare state, uh, that can have a really radical impact on society as a whole because it says, you know, the engine of classical capitalism is that you have to work for capitalist businessmen or you will starve or you will be deprived, you know, you will have a poor life. Um, but if you have a, a completed welfare state, that stick is completely gone. And that maybe says there is a difference indeed between even social democracy and um, New Deal liberalism or the Great Society and the New Deal and how the welfare state arose in this country and, and why perhaps certain Scandinavian uh, countries today might be seen as, as more of a social democracy than uh, what even FDR and Keynes and LBJ envisioned. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that, um, especially because, you know, what New Deal ideology is rather strange and it doesn't really fit into either of these categories exactly. Um, but before we do that, let's just do, you know, uh, democratic socialism, I would say, is basically social democracy plus mm. some kind of uh, collective ownership of the means of production, whether that's, you know, state-owned businessmen, business, uh, businesses, enterprises, rather, um, as, uh, you know, a whole lot of countries have these. Even the United States has Amtrak. Um, but, you know, these can be very significant in some countries. Um, 60% of Norway's GDP comes from state-owned businesses. Or you could do a more sort of passive approach where you have... Um, you know, a, a big fund, a so, social wealth fund or a sovereign wealth fund, which you basically buy up the means of production and you put it in a big pot of money, big pot, big fund. And then, you know, you can say, as happens in Alaska, um, the capital income of that pot of money um, or pot of wealth, rather, is just going to be distributed on a per capita basis. So, um you know, you could, I think in Alaska last year it was like a thousand bucks and it goes up and down depending on the market. But at any rate, you know, so this is about collective, the, the classic socialist ob objective of collective ownership of the means of production. And when you're talking about, you know, about 30%, 33% maybe of the national income generally goes to capital. And so, and capital is almost entirely owned by the top 10%. Probably half of it is owned by the top 1%, depending on the country. And so this this can be a way to beat back what is the engine of inequality in this country, um, which is capital income. You know, since 2000, all of the income growth of the top 1% has come from capital income. Amazing. Just, own, you know, collectively or, or uh, passively collecting rents from the ownership of assets. I'm glad you said that. I think it's important to define what capital is and, and maybe yeah. even just uh, break down what the means of production uh, means because uh, I think a lot of people who maybe aren't uh, so well versed in the political philosophy think that uh, socialism is simply high taxes, right? Yeah. But there's a categorical difference between, say, how maybe even a lot of social democracies might work, although some have these socialistic um, enterprises of which you speak. But uh, what's the difference and why is it important to have collective ownership and, and you know, ownership of the means of production uh, rather than just um, distributing, right, income that's taxed differently? Yeah, well, so, you know, the the uh, taxation only gets you, like, to, to so much, you know. And one of the problems, especially if for these Nordic countries, is that if you have very high taxes, then you have the problem of capital flight, you have tax evasion. You know, the, these are very significant phenomena, even in, you know, high trust, very low corruption Nordic societies, you know, people cooking the books to avoid taxes and, uh, you know, moving somewhere else or selling their businesses to Microsoft or something like that. Um, and uh, one way to avoid that problem is to just buy the company. Yeah. To, or, or to say, uh, actually, more realistically, how this has generally happened is you build up a, a company like when Norway discovered a bunch of oil, uh, when, what they did was um, they hired a 
third-party oil company basically to like show them how to build a well out in the sea which is you know this is a heavy north sea like difficult type of Mm. oil extraction and uh that you know it was like you build us one oil platform and in and as a stipulation of that you're going to show us how to do it so from there you know they uh they they learned it sort of built it up and eventually it became like a very significant oil company and they've done a sort of similar process where you just sort of like pick out something you want to do and then like like any entrepreneur would do it really but in this case the the thing is owned by the state and so there is no possibility of the phenomenon of tax evasion happening because like literally the money by legal arrangement is going directly into the coffers of the government um instead of you know the government having to reach into people's private accounts to try to make sure that they're paying their you know legal requirements whatever like that um and so you know that that that's a situation that is really concerning especially for small countries and so i think that's why somewhat smaller countries like Norway are ones that have really gone in for it pretty heavily. Um, If you want to sort of insulate your domestic economy from the winds of capitalism, you know, which can be quite brutal for these little countries. Mm -hmm. um, That's, you know, that's what was their particular motivation, I should say. So that socialist um, move is distinct in important ways. Um, and so in understanding democratic socialism uh, as a distinct from social democracy, it's emphasis more on collective ownership yeah. so that we can have the benefits of that capital accumulation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, you know, the, this, you know, focused on development, efficiency and and, uh, you know, there is also just, I think, a um, an effort to prove that it can be done you know that that the government can operate things uh just as well in certain contexts as the private market can you know it's like a sort of we're all in this together type of thing (laughs) and and it actually works fine you know so would you say another example of the distinction between social democracy and democratic socialism um which might be confusing given certain political realities and what people are pushing um is single payer versus the NHS, you know, um, the way that healthcare is done in say Canada versus in, um, Britain. Yeah, Um, that, that's, um, I mean, from a, it, it, it sort of depends on where you're standing, you know, uh, to pass Medicare for all would be to effectively nationalize the entire insurance industry. Um, and that would be, in a sense, socialist. But certainly the NHS is more socialist than um, a Medicare system. You so know, the providers be, yeah, are also. They, right. They, they own, they, they do the insurance and they own the hospitals and they employ, directly employ the doctors and so on and so forth. Um, and historically, the NHS has been quite good, even though it's been badly underfunded for the last kind of 10 years. Uh, it's still certainly better than the U.S. system. Um, so the, uh, with that out of the way, I think now we can talk a little bit about the new deal, uh, which do you have any initial thoughts on that? On the new deal? Uh, yeah. So uh, as we briefly mentioned, I think when people compare politics today to politics from, you know, almost a hundred years ago or, or whatnot, uh, it's important to see what's analogous and what's not, given the different historical contexts. Yeah. Uh, so I would say that to understand, you know, there's a spectrum we talk about as something radical. Is it very lefty? Is it conservative? Is it progressive? Um, well, these terms really change depending on um, the context. And at the time, the context, which I think you'll get into in a, a bit more detail, um, was one in which capitalism was under tremendous threat. Um, after the Great Depression and with the rise of really revolutionary and reactionary forces on the left and right, um, you know, the, the, the ways that, that capitalism might survive had to um, involve change in some dramatic way to curb the, uh, the effects that, like, say, Karl Polanyi talks about uh, that come along with it. 
but um, so maybe we could talk a bit more about that context to see just how um, distinct that time was and the, what the solutions had to be and, and how we should characterize them. And then we could talk about what that means compared to today, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So at the time, you know, FDR was a not remotely a radical um but what made him a really excellent president was the was that he subordinated his own um political instincts his own political ideology to the necessity of the time and in a time that was required very 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 aggressive uh moves you know like like um you know, there was this just massive built up, just like today, this built up orthodoxy about, you know, capitalism and the market and how the gold standard is the, you know, uh, route to moral rectitude and all that kind of stuff. And FDR was sort of like he, he didn't necessarily disbelieve that, like he was always very, very sort of nervous about deficit spending. But he was all, he also didn't take it as received wisdom either, especially on the gold standard, which he was just sort of like, that sounds kind of stupid. <laughs> and he just like got rid of it by himself, um, you, like in this kind of quasi legal abuse of a World War One era um money law he just like confiscated all the gold in the country (laughs) and like basically got rid of the gold standard um but new deal ism as as a sort of like set of practices also reflects that sort of jumbled origin you know so it was a turn to the left and especially after about 1935 which is when like the second new deal, because like originally FDR wanted to have a kind of grand coalition where he said, you know, I'm going to be the power broker and I'm going to sit here and like, I'm going to have business at the table and labor at the table and, you know, consumer organizations and whatnot. And I'm going to sort of like mediate between all of them. But business hated that they wanted all the power and they got really mad at Roosevelt for the, you know, not doing exactly what they said all the time and, uh, you know, just attacked all of his uh, policies. And so after a while, he got sick and tired of that. He just threw his work, his lot in with the working class pretty much and antitrust, which is kind of those are kind of the two big, I would say, pillars of New Dealism and um, decided to make, you know, enormous political hay out of attacking business all the time decided to welcome their hatred yeah right and you know needling them all constantly and they just despised roosevelt they thought you know he was a he was a rich man you know he had been in the orthodox wasp establishment you know his dang name was roosevelt he came from a big house with servants and everything and they just were so furious that he wouldn't take dictation um you know, it's like his his uh, uncle, Theodore Roosevelt, um, I, f- I forget exactly who, you know, he was not nearly as radical as FDR in his time, but he, he was much more sympathetic to the, uh, you know, the needs of the broader population than like Taft, certainly. And a uh, famous quote about him, what's his name, Jim uh, uh, Fisk? There's a, one of the big robber barons, basically, which had given tons of money to Theodore Roosevelt. Um, you know, after Roosevelt started his trust-busting campaign, he said, we, uh, we bought him and the son of a bitch didn't stay bought. <laughs> which is, you know, a classic... Uh, that's a, a skill people need to cultivate more often. Uh, but at any rate, so... Yeah, you have a real turn to the left, but it never really solidified into any kind of coherent program. And that, I think, is the big difference between New Dealism and democratic socialism or social democracy, you know, because these are like, like they have a sort of clear objective. And what what New Dealism was more a kind of like whack-a-mole of stuff is like, you know, um, 
unions. We need to protect union rights. We're going to stick some union stuff in there. But we're also at the same time going to do like a lot of antitrust things too. It's a hodgepodge in a way. So it wasn't as ideologically like clear on how it wanted, except for Keynesianism, which is a reformist uh, approach to kind of saving capitalism from itself and from the deleterious effects that would otherwise uh, occur if you stick with uh, not to be anachronistic, but for, with the Hayek's and the neoclassical uh, approach and and the neoliberal approach that would come later and the disasters that it would uh, it would come with. So um, Keynesianism, I would say, is a somewhat coherent, at least, which is more economic focus, yeah. at least on how to deal with capitalism. That is um, now. Would you say how how distinct might that be from social democracy? Well, it's coherent in the sense of like. Uh, stabilizing the, you know, the ups and downs of the business cycle, cycle, right? Um, especially in the way you know, sort of popular Keynesianism. It's like people forget about this, but in the in the general theory of employment, interest, and money, Keynes says that you know it, it may become necessary for the government to sort of socialize like half of all investment because you could reach a situation where it's just like private business is not providing enough investment to keep uh, full employment going and right. people n- n- they don't they really talk that. about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and uh but so that you know that is is kind of orthogonal to so it has to yes. do with uh, employment and workers but it you know it doesn't really have anything to say about welfare for example and this um you know the new dealism had very little welfare you know the big so they had a, a little program for uh very poor people um uh it was called a- afdc i think they passed it in 1935 which is just like aid to very poor mothers and then they had Social Security. And some public works. Programs. Yeah, right, right. But that's not, you know, that was just like reemployment yeah. sort of stuff. And Social Security, especially when they started it up, the way that they sold it was as a savings program. And so you couldn't actually collect any benefits until you had paid into it for like 30 years. So the first, the, the, the first thing that Social Security did was to suck demand out of the economy because you were raising all these payroll taxes, but you weren't giving anything out again. That's because it sucks. Because the yeah. certain, you know, they didn't even say like, well, the first people in were just going to sort of set out the, you know, the new payment schedule. And even though you didn't pay into it, we'll give it to you because you couldn't have paid in. Nope, they didn't do that. Yeah. First people to, to get their Social Security checks were getting almost nothing. Wow. And, you know, because they... It's, it's a very sort of liberal notion that like you should have to save for retirement. And so even when we're setting up a straight up welfare payment, which is taking from the working class and giving to the retired, we're going to ma- pretend like it's a savings program. I think you've hit the head on something important that distinguishes <clears throat> liberalism of which New Deal and Great Society uh, policies were a part ideologically from social democracy and then even more so from democratic socialism, which is the moral reasoning behind why certain things need to be the way they are. And that even bleeds in into the economics and, and right in a weird way. Um, but uh, because morally you need to earn what you get and you need to work for it, you can't be given things, uh, that leads to certain policy proposals and initiatives uh, as distinct from the more anti-capitalist uh, assumptions um, that Indeed, you know, greed is not good. And indeed, you don't have to earn everything. And it's a weird way to conceive of the common good. Yeah. And then the whole, you know, the whole point of like the completed welfare state is to remove private market compulsion from the institution of work altogether. Yes. Um, And, you know, the New Deal really just didn't have all that much to say about that. Yeah. but then again, you know, there there were some ways in which the New Deal was like even more aggressive than uh, some uh, social democratic states. So, for example, the sure. top marginal tax rate was up to like 94 percent. That is a lot higher than yeah. it, it is in today in Norway or Sweden. Um, and the 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 point of that was also like even more 
kind of radical, which is to say, what you know, this isn't a revenue raising measure. This is about preventing people from making money yeah, to sort of push, uh, you know, revenue and the, the corporate surplus away from the executive class and the manager class and into wages and uh, investment, you know, maintaining the uh, plant and equipment and so forth. Um, and that, you know, that's another kind of, you know, like, like one of the, I think, key ways to see like, like new dealism as a sort of like a bunch of ad hoc measures to sort of regulate capitalism to make it work better than it did. But a lot of those ended up being like very radical, you know, just, I mean, stiff, stiff taxes on the rich. Um, and in a, you know, in an explicitly egalitarian sort of framework, you know, I mean, during the war, FDR, he wanted a full on maximum income of like $25,000. So literally 100% marginal tax rate. So like you, yeah. you are legally forbidden from making any more money than this. And he didn't quite, he didn't get it, but he almost, he got a, the next best thing. And, um, cause he didn't want to have war profiteering basically. And so, yeah, you know, it's like, you can criticize the New Deal in some ways. Obviously, it had some compromises with racism and so forth. But at the same time, like, it it was some really aggressive stuff here and there. And it really did fundamentally change the way the American society was ordered for the better, unquestionably. Which is to say that even if, let's say, you were going to anachronistically employ that term today, because it was a context-specific set of policies meeting a certain need of a certain time to apply it properly today would also be to appraise what we need now and what's what hodgepodge of policies we would need to also take care of those those needs and interests um so it's weird to say that it's just the same because even if you apply it analogously it wouldn't be the same set of policies it would be different in a way, considering the the newly, not newly, but uh, ever increasing more globalized economy. And, and this is, I think, another important thing to talk about at some point, which is the ways in which even socialist proposals uh, are proposed within nation states in a capitalist, glo- a global capitalist world. Um, yeah. And that's a different thing than envisioning, uh, you know, a global socialist world. <laughs> For example, yeah, it's true. It's true, um, and that that could be, I suppose, one way that you could say that new, you know, social democracy in American context is sort of an updated New Dealism because I, I think it's you know, if if FDR or Lyndon Johnson were alive today, there's a good chance that they might see, you know, the sort of Bernie Sanders platform as being the logical extension of the type of thing that they were doing that makes a lot of sense in the modern context, you know, it's, it's like the, I mean, especially FDR, you know, it's, it's, it's like we're, we're right back to the 1932, you know, sort of distribution of, in, or 1929 distribution of income, you know, it's like, I fixed this once before already. <laughs> You're back <laughs> you where know? we started? Yeah. Uh, And Bernie is, I think, a social democrat, despite the fact that he calls himself a a democratic socialist or socialist, right? Yeah, clearly in the the proposals that he's making, you know, he's not really (laughs) talking about a sovereign wealth fund or anything like that. Not yet, at least, you know, but I I think he would be amenable to those suggestions. But and that's the other thing that I think is important. Whether you call yourself a democratic socialist or a social democrat, uh, in the short term, that might be a distinction without a difference yeah. because of the policy proposals on offer to be um, moving in that direction are going to be the same anyway, uh, for the most part. And, and the goal for a democratic socialist will be to move farther when the, when the point comes that you can do so. Yeah, and, the, you know, it could be the kind of thing where, where you... You know, if if you were ever in the heat of the moment, you know, like there's some crazy swing election, you know, you you certainly can say the social Democrats are more like not as aggressive policy wise. But 
at the same time, you know, there's not a lot of people who object in principle to the idea of a sovereign wealth fund, you know, or like building up a portfolio of state owned enterprises, you know, sort of public option for housing and so forth. Um, and so, you you know, you could see a kind of grand coalition. Do you think that's different from the ability to get neoliberals in coalition with any of the left, uh, either with social democrats or democratic socialists? Because is there something, it seems like a spectrum we're, we're kind of defining here, but in a way, isn't there a categorical difference between, say, a neoliberal uh, or a centrist liberal and then both social democrats and democratic socialists? Uh, or could you possibly see neoliberals getting on board in the same way that you see a coalition of the left? I think some, you know, you see like those kind of Nis Canaan. What's those? Yes. Whatever. Maybe yeah, pronouncing that wrong. They're Will Wilkinson and yeah. So they do a lot of stuff about climate change, right. and it's sort of like the Cato Institute, divorced of all their you know, worst impulses. Um, I could see them getting on board with certain, especially you're talking about welfare stuff, you know, like those guys seem totally amenable to public provision of like unquestioned social goods, like sure. health insurance and paid leave and all that kind of stuff. Um, so they agree there's certain public goods that shouldn't be commodified and shouldn't be subject to market. Well, it's just or? right. It's, you know, the way the way to have like a nice capitalist system is to have, you know, you have your sort of baseline of public goods, your welfare capitalists, basically, like kind of how Sweden is today. So, so you've you got your health, your education, your environment, maybe energy. Yeah. Fa- yeah. A few other things, you know, like uh, some income supports for, for poor people. And, Shelter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, you know, like the, the rest of the economy is just your typical bunch of businesses competing in the marketplace. Um, there are a lot of neoliberals who I think would not be on board with that. And even a lot of Democrats, you know, like Andrew Cuomo, uh, Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, probably, uh, Cory Booker. Depends. I don't know. He's a firm. He's committed to his ideology. Uh, Mike Bloomberg. You know these. These are people who I think, if the if push came to shove, they would probably try to business. They would say, yeah, they would do like a third party run, or they'd just go for Trump. You know, I I would not rule that out at all. You know, like the people when it starts to talk about their own personal pocketbook being like severely impacted by a bunch of you know, massive tax hikes. Uh, I think that you would really, you know, the mask would come off. Is there a lot of people who are, who are perfectly fine with posing as the wokest, you know, (laughs) defender of, of the, you know, oppressed underclass so long as milk toast Hillary Clinton was at the top of the ticket. But if it's, you know, Bernie or Keith Ellison or something like that. Uh, I I have a question for you. Since we, we're talking almost exclusively about domestic politics and policies, and there is on the left, uh, especially, I mean, I don't know about social democracy. This is what I'm going to ask what you think. For sure, socialists would tend to see the connection between imperialism and foreign policy to the political economy in this country. And the, the exploitation of the workers here is, um, you know, side by side with the exploitation of uh, the rest of the world in our imperialism. Uh, and so our foreign policy is something that needs to be distinguished uh, as socialistic versus centrist, if you were, or neoliberal as well. Yeah. That's a thing where I feel like a lot of the, sometimes the traditional left arguments in this, arena don't really ring exactly true to me you know like there's clearly sort of vested interest behind stuff like um you know the war in yemen you know we're selling a lot of arms to saudi arabia uh and they're you know using it to blow up people school buses yeah school buses full of children whether that is sort of necessary in the context of like continuing to continuing global trade seems like 
not even that does like doesn't even really have anything to do with global trade exactly. It seems to me more much more likely to be just basically a case of straightforward bribery. You know, the Saudis have the massive lobbying apparatus and they are, you know, basically purchasing US support for their genocidal, you know, war of just kind of who knows what they're doing over there exactly how it makes sense in their own head. But um Certainly, you would say that if you were, if you're trying to do some kind of a, uh, glow glo- like a internal left wing policy program, an important corollary of that would be trying to structure trade relations and, um, you know, your own sort of diplomatic politics to 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 strengthen left wing forces in other countries around the world you know especially your main trading partners um because the goal is ultimately to have a a global socialism just like capitalism is currently global you want to shift as much as possible into and it makes it easier domestically if you that's right and 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 the i think you know the that that should not be understood as the way like the Soviets used to do it, where you like you give arms and and like money to to insurgents to try to overthrow the state. I think that's a the track record of that is hundred percent disastrous, um, almost across the board. It's like beating somebody to get them to stop domestic violence. Yeah, right. You know, you you end up with places like Cuba, which are you know have some like nice characteristics, but at the end of the day, are really not a success story. Um, but, you know, one should be, one should be very humble about one's ability to influence the politics of other nations. But at the same time, you can try to push things in the right direction. So you can say, you know, like we're going to renegotiate the trade framework, you know, and we, and we're going to make a, you know, as, as part of that, um, say with China, we're going to like do some new trade deals with China. And part of that is going to be that you, you know, Chinese government, we want you to rebalance your economy a little bit towards wages and away from, you know, basically communist party corruption, you know, and away from workers jumping out of the buildings. Yeah, right. So in both on sort of like moral grounds to say like, you know, workers deserve a bigger cut of these massive trade surpluses you're getting from the United States. But at the same time, if workers are making more money in China, then that means American workers are not being undercut by quite so much, you know, so like trying to put the those those types of things into into practice and like construct a global trade regime in which, you know, that's kind of more managed than the one we have now. And not the same as just mere protectionism and tariffs. No. But, right. Which which is, uh, of course, against neoliberalism and the free trade that helps prop up capital's uh, interests. But it's a different strategy that's not just concerned. Uh, even though there's not necessarily anything wrong with being uh, concerned first with the, the nation state of which you are a citizen, because you have the power um, yeah. there, um, but to be also concerned with people around the world and not simply doing protectionism that doesn't necessarily help the workers in China. No, no, no. And I, I think, you know, Keynes had an interesting idea for a global trade regime um, in which you would you would have uh semi fixed currencies and you would have uh trading denominated in a a currency called uh bancor and and um you know it's like at the end of the trading period or whatever you have to net out your accounts exports minus imports and you know whatever the uh difference is you would have to like make it up or pay it out and the important aspect of this is that you you would be incentivized on both the, against the deficit and against the surplus. So the the point is to sort of like push countries towards balanced trade as opposed to the current system, which really incentivizes people to go for surpluses. But the problem with surpluses is that you have to finance them with deficits and 
you know, that eventually leads to crisis and a, you know, permanent shortfall of aggregate demand in deficit countries. Because you can, you know, you have to recycle that surplus back into the system somehow. So this, you know, this would be the kind of thing where, where, you know, sort of like Bretton Woods only better, you know, a way that would really prov- allow for countries to trade, which is necessary in some ways, but also, uh, you know, be able to kind of get on that development ladder and, uh, you know, not be stuck just growing, you know, soybeans forever for a developed world or something like that. To somewhat digress, do you think it confuses the hell out of Fox News, which has been calling centrist neoliberals now socialist for decades <laughs> to see self-proclaimed socialists running and being popular are their heads just exploding and not knowing i i see these tweets from fox news or fox business that um i see as kind of promoting accidentally uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez <laughs> and showing clips of her saying very popular things about Medicare for all and getting money out of uh, politics and Fox is promoting it as, as if it was a bad platform I think not realizing how attractive that is are, are they just not knowing what to do here or what yeah they they do seem like really ideologically unmoored to be the, 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 like they they have used their sort of own radicalism to you know, pull politics to the right for 30 years. And now that like a similar process is happening on the left, like their magic talismans aren't working anymore. Well, I think it's especially confusing because neoliberalism is terrible. And so when you, when you label something terrible as socialist, okay, well that's going to stick because the effects of neoliberalism are indeed bad. So somebody's like, okay, bad effects. I'm going to call it liberalism. I mean, I'm going to call it socialism Yeah, as a Freudian slip. Um, but then when something good, like actual socialism gets proposed, that doesn't work anymore <laughs> because to, to offer people, uh, Medicare for all and getting money out of politics doesn't sound bad folks. That sounds yeah. great. <laughs> there was a daily caller lady who went to, uh, AOC rally and she was like I saw how easy it would be to embrace the idea that my children have a right to education and health care <laughs> how seductive <laughs> that is like it was like I I just missed you know like just opening my veins into the great <laughs> well, death th- pot of I, I think the important caveat in that interview was she said you know if you don't think about how we're going to pay for this it can seem tremendously attractive. Like the only recourse she had in the, the cognitive dissonance that was produced, the only way she could get out of being attracted to it ultimately was how are we going to pay for this? Yeah. And, and coops, if our problem is that if their last defense against socialism is how are we going to pay for this? Yeah. Boy. And the uh, difference is we're already paying for it yes. enough. You know, we already spend more, more. government money than Canada or Finland, or Sweden, per or capita. France, per person, on just government stuff. Yes. So so we don't have to pay for it at all. You know, if we, if we were sufficiently aggressive, uh, we could just pay for it like that. You know, probably if we're going to actually do it for real, you would have to find some more tax money. But it's like, you know, you don't understand the, the world in which you are living if you think that the United States is a lightly taxed country, that we don't have the fiscal space to provide for a generous healthcare program. You know, it's uh, one, let's see, I did this math to today. The If you add up, uh, or day before yesterday, add up uh, the cost of Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, veterans uh, NHS style program, yes. um, and CHIP, the child's health insurance program, that is $1.929 trillion in 2016. Um, it's just over an Apple company yeah, market cap. Two, two, no, 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 two apples, <laughs> one point nine two, yeah, almost yeah, two yeah, trillion, almost two, almost two, yeah, almost two, two trillion dollars. It's a lot. Two Apple companies, and that yeah. is not even you know because then on top of that you have the employer to health insurance tax exclusion that costs about two hundred and uh, like eighty billion. Then you have Obamacare subsidies; those cost about forty eight billion, and then you have uh, you know a couple of other things. At some point, it adds up to real money. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's. Right. Uh, 
That's what, a lot of money to play with. One point nine trillion here, one point nine trillion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, no, so that's that's a that's a fascinating thing. Um, because neoliberalism can be picked apart for how ridiculous it is in the way that it tries to incentivize this and let the market take care of that. Um, the, yeah. r- the right has, a, I think, a far easier time making fun of all that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, these these big government cl- kludges like Obamacare. It's like you got a million moving parts, you know. That, yeah. Like, it really is kind of compelling, but you're just talking about Medicare. People know what Medicare is, you know. It works really well. It worked well enough. Reasonably it's well. certainly better than my insurance. Yeah. Better than any private insurance for the most part. Um. And that's kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting in that it it makes, you know, people who are social Democrats, even Democratic Socialists, are, are kind of, in a sense, small C conservative. You know, like a lot of Bernie Sanders political argumentation is just going, it already works over there. Exactly. We could have a exactly. nice thing and just follow the thing. Like, you don't, you know, there's no utopian dreaming going on here. We're just trying to copy the thing that's worked for 50 years in other countries. I think it's a great point. It's a very important point. And it's so hard to argue with because that conservative attitude, which doesn't want to take risks, is um, should be assuaged by that. It's like, oh, what about American exceptionalism? Are are, are the Scandinavians just better at things than we are? Just yeah. <laughs> is that, are, are we not capable of replicating what poorer countries are able to do more successfully? No, certainly not. Um, so, okay, then. We do see on the left a little bit to that point of a rebellion against the conservatism of social democracy and of, I, I think you do see certain leftists saying, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cynthia Nixon, uh, all these self-proclaimed socialists, they're not really socialists. They're capitalists. They're just like the rest of the Democrats. S- you know, screw them, right? The, and, and so... <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> on that? Well, I think, you know, they're... And and sometimes, you know, you can see these folks have, like, a legitimate critique on certain things. Um, Palestine, the, Yeah, example. yeah, yeah. Like, so, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in an interview, you know, she was sort of, like, probably wrong-footed on Palestine. And she said, oh, two-state solution sounds good. You know, it's just, like, really unrealistic. Two-state solutions probably been out of the cards for a decade, at least. Um, Quite intentionally by Yeah, issue. right, right, right. I mean, it's just uh, Netanyahu killed it. It's just not going to happen, I would I would say. But setting that aside, you know, when, like folks who are just sort of getting their start are kind of like weak on certain things uh, or, you know, maybe have some blind spots here and there. Uh, that, that, you know, that's a legitimate critique, you know, and like the left hasn't built up its kind of propaganda apparatus or it's like sort of think tank apparatus. Well, like there's not really a party line on a lot of stuff. Um, but at the same time, there is a tendency to just be like, like leftier than thou. Yeah, exactly. To, to, if anybody gets any sort of mainstream traction, you go over everything they say with a fine tooth comb <laughs> and you and you like find some sort of deviation or a mistake or some, you know, kind of compromising idea. And you say, see, this person is dog shit. Worst person in the world. I can't believe all of you people are not as morally pure as me. The it's person it's who, this like weird tautology, this perverse uh, in law res ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. So the very fact that someone's popular means they can't be a true leftist. Yeah. So if they have any popular support, they are already co-opted by the establishment. Oh, they won office running as a Democrat. Well, then they're just like the rest of them, yeah, and there, and which is a pretty like self, uh, you know, uh, defeating approach to politics if you i mean if you believe in electoral politics at all yeah i suppose yeah and some people don't which is you know i mean i suppose that's a fair way to think but there's there is a tendency among people who like their identity is being on the fringe and they they find all of their political conclusions based on that so for example i remember being criticized one time over a social housing paper and the criticism was that it should be f- public housing like 
not universal. It should be only open to poor people, poor people first. And I said, that's uh, Eisenhower's position on public housing, <laughs> which you have just, you know, reverse engineered. Because, you know, it was like, the, you know, your idea, you're not the true leftist. And so there, you need an alternative position. Well, the alternative position is means testing. Yes, exactly. You know? So it's people exactly. who are not, they don't, you know, have a lot of like set principles other than if it's popular, it's bad. It's the, it's the equivalent of... Uh... I feel bad for the first hipster is what I, I feel. <laughs> I feel bad for the uh, the person who is actually counterculture just because he liked those obscure bands or she she really dug, you know, um, that that way of rebelling against uh, the norm. But when when the counter norm became the norm, uh, you know, you're not really authentically adhering to anything anymore. You're just uh, to go against the grain just because it's it's against something is not a principle yeah you just become contrarian you know and um is that why we get the the trump sympathizing leftists sometimes yeah the (laughs) anti-anti-trump brigade i i think possibly and and i think you know part of it is just that you know there hasn't been the left hasn't had any power in this country for you know 50 years i mean pretty much since the uh mccarthy era really haven't had a lot like with some maybe arguable minor exceptions here and there that was that was like kind of the the end of like real systematic left power yeah and um i think it's really kind of spinning some heads you know to be like dang people are getting elected to congress you know it was like this could this could be you know, this was really happening. And then that kind of raises questions of like, well, if, if certain things are in the realm of possibility, you know, what are we willing to, to trade to get to, you know, it raises like uncomfortable questions about like political tactics. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to just be like, everything is bad. America is bad. Right. And just sort of leave it at that. But when you're, ta- when you're talking about like, okay, you know, we're within spitting distance of this, like how Lives can we get will, it through? Change. Yeah. Lives will be affected. And why can't we, or how can we, get past the intra-left nitpicking and assuming things about certain candidates and they're going to fail and they're going to be co-opted and this plan isn't ambitious enough? Okay, push for something more ambitious. How about you don't just like shoot down any small success and promote, I mean, we, we can't get into this in this um, episode, but... Uh, drives me nuts seeing, say, the universal basic income proponents going against the jobs guarantee proponents. As, yeah. as you know, poor Jeff Spross, the one person it seems is loudly saying, "Hey, how about both? How about we push for both?" It seems like they go together well. Let's let's push for all the different policies that seem to be an improvement over where we're at, and have imagination and 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 just demand and and, and just hope for as many things as possible to. Um, curb the deleterious effects of capitalism, move us towards a better world. Uh, And instead, it's like at the gestation stage, we want to kind of like abort as many possible things as possible to find the one baby to give birth to. Uh, My metaphor has gotten weird. (laughs) (laughs) But but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I I think it's just kind of a a phase that folks are going to have to get through. They're not Um, used to it, maybe. Yeah, right. And, And it's just, you know... I mean, the the kind of people who I like the, the the people who just love being on the fringe most of all are always going to be there, and that's fine. You know, you can, you can always have critics, um, but I think you know we're seeing now is like people building up gradually, bit by bit, um, a a much more serious kind of uh, worked out ways of thinking about things. You know, and and in not to not to say like like abandoning earlier radicalism but translating that radicalism into stuff you could actually pass on a you know municipal level a state level or a national level um and it takes a long time because you know you just got to work through a lot of political baggage and you know these folks ain't got no money you know you're you're working on a tenth or less of the sort of subsidies that flow to any kind of right-wing think tank or 
or, you know, propaganda shop. Um, but I think in time, you know, we will have worked through it, you know, over through a sort of dialectical process, I guess. Yes. Like fo- folks will sort of settle on a set of, you know, programs that seem to really uh, speak to the needs of the country. And in the meantime, I think it's both true that your average voter, whatever that means, but or the, the large swath of people that might vote and might help support things don't need to be, I don't need to sit uh, millions of people down and give them a lecture on all the different political ideologies and the distinctions, right? They don't, they, they don't need to, they don't need to iron out all these differences before they, they already know, Hey, Medicare for all, that sounds great. Uh, yeah. how about I don't have to suffer the slings and, and arrows of outrageous capitalism, you know? Uh, and so if we both focus on the particular policies, uh, that help people and people like and will support. And at the same time, I think support candidates who self-identify as socialist and tie that term to these good things, right? That has to be a good thing in, in the long run because there is, I think, an important distinction between, broadly speaking, people who think capitalism is going to take care of everything for us and people that think no capitalism is, uh, if not the entire problem, so bound up with it that an alternative view of uh, of politics that uh, opposes its its deleterious effects has to be pushed. And and self identifying as socialist is a good way to alert people to that. Yeah, I think that's right. And to and to maybe pull it back around to the, what we started off at here, uh, the. You know, you look at like what is wrong with American politics over the last 30 years. Um, It's that there hasn't been a coherent, organized left wing in the same way that there has been a coherent, organized right wing, both in terms of like, you know, sort of a counterbalance to the right wing extremism of the of the uh, uh, the Tea Party and, you know, its ideological predecessors. Um, But also in just like maintaining clearly superior policy options like Medicare for all, like postal banking, um, like $15 minimum wage and all that kind of stuff on the agenda in a way. Cause without, you know, it's like, you see what happens in the difference between the Republican party in 1964 and the democratic party in 1972, both times they lost really bad. But the Republican Party stayed right and they eventually, you know, because like elections are more or less a coin toss in a lot of cases, they got their guy in and Reagan in 1980. But the Democrats decided that their whole, you know, legacy of the past generation, which had been very successful, just needed to be thrown over the side. And so they turned to the right and they, you know, became neoliberal like the Blairites and all those guys. And the reason they did that was because they did not have that left anchor to sort of pull them back like the Republicans had their right anchor. And, you know, so we are dealing with the legacy of two disastrous Democratic presidents because they didn't have that left anchor like uh, FDR had. One of the reasons why FDR was a great president was because he had those people more or less forcing him to make good decisions, you know, and giving him those decisions to make, you know, like putting it on the national agenda. And um, so when we're arguing about whether this is that or whatever, one way to sort of, I think, especially in an American context, to create a left like tendency um, is is to say like this is, you know, this is the socialist program, like because that's a thing that's pretty hard to co-opt in an American context because, you know, your regular centrists aren't going to get anywhere near that, at least not not now. Um, And so, you know, building that anchor to hold American politics sort of like to the, you know, rocks of reality, uh, I think is an important goal. Absolutely. You know, it occurs to me that the right has had a a better time until recently coalescing their um, divergent groups, which really the coalition is between social conservatism, right? And, um, and the business class. And for the most part, the social conservatives have bought into the ideology of the business class, uh, 
even if it's harmed them because of what they hope to get out of the Supreme Court justices and, and all the social conservative uh, laws uh, about gay marriage and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, Trump, I think, started to capture a little rebellion that was no longer so happy with the business class of the Republican Party uh, and tried to, to give a little more populist talk to, to try to capture that dissatisfaction. So you have this opportunity as we can see from those who both liked Trump and, and Bernie in the last election, um, to have a broad socialist class and a broad socialist movement that captures some from the right. However, you have many on the left, especially the neoliberals and the centrists, whose identity politics is really at the forefront of what they care about, uh, coupled with um, capitalism, uh, who are saying, hey, we can't turn our party into these racist-loving, uh, right? Like, we can't just accommodate these Trump supporters and bring them into the fold. The minimum wage is racist. Yes, yes. I, so, so, like, on the one hand, you can listen to that and be like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. But then if you think about it for more than a minute, it's crazy, right? This critique. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and this, I think, you know, the... This critique, I think, was was quite strong in 2015, 2016, when the representative of uh, leftism was an old white guy. Um, but now I would say, you know, co-equal with him is, uh, you know, a 28, 29-year-old Latina woman. Um, and we're seeing that the centrists don't really particularly like her either. But, you know, so but it has completely taken the wind out of the sails of the Bernie bro you know, yeah. uh, uh, slur. And the, the next Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is uh, Julia Salazar. Yeah, that's Ho- right. Hopefully. Who, who, are, who is the left most excited about? Gay woman in New York. Uh, Cynthia Nixon, yep. yeah. Latina um, woman in Queens and the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure where Julia Salazar is. Uh, her district is New York City, I think. Uh, it is. But, there. you know, another Latina woman. You know, so it's From like... You know, the the, the Bernie bros. Right? Yeah, right. Every one of them, white dude bros who are over sixty. <laughs> Never mind the erasure of people of color. Yeah, uh, from the movement and and how they don't really exist. It's just the white Bernie bros. So, um, yeah. So those are some of the things that have to be worked through. But ultimately, those that actually see the value of the of the end to which the socialist uh, movement is working will hopefully uh, work with each other to. Uh, to fight the real enemy, which is, uh, I think, conservatism, neoliberalism, capitalism, maybe. Yes, I think so. You know, and it's it's uh, especially as you train up a new generation of kind of lefty leaders who I think will definitely be, you know, kind of rainbow nation type of folks. You know, there's going to be some white dudes in there, but, you know, it's like a third of the population. Of course, there will be some. Um but you know it's 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 going to be unquestionably a diverse movement because yeah. like who needs left wing economic policy the worst in this country? It is black people, it is Latinos, it is you know women um, writ large. Uh, there are policies for every single one of these sort of like particular discriminations. And if if otherwise racist white Trump supporters basically decide and conclude that that rainbow coalition is so attractive that if you can't beat them, join them. Is that the worst outcome, really? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think uh, maybe to close out here, because we're, we're, we're getting on, but there, there's an interesting model of uh, how this has happened in the past. So, for example, you, ha- you look at, like, what is African-American opinion about gay marriage circa, like, 2005? Conservative. Yeah overwhelmingly against it and um you know nevertheless they voted for clearly in 2004 the more like Kerry was not pro-gay marriage but he was less anti-gay than bush in 2008 obama was the same um and in 2012 he came out for gay marriage equality equality. Mm -hmm. and uh in fact, in that circumstance, the when it, when he said that, black opinion about gay marriage shifted dramatically because you know he has a 
for obvious reasons, a lot of credibility in that particular community. So at any rate, you folded people in who had, you know, kind of retrograde beliefs about um, a particular segment of the rest of the uh, demographic blocks, you know, what, uh, nevertheless, they still voted for the party of gay people writ large in an American context. And, uh, you know, just sort of like over process of time, those, those uh, attitudes was like slowly whittled away. And, you know, the way that you did that was by making it very clear that whatever you think, Democrats are still the party of, you know, black interests compared to the Republicans. And um, that seems like a very intelligent way of doing it. It's like you, you don't want to you don't ever want to say things like even if you believe it, like things like the basket of deplorables comment, you know, you want to be it's like, you know, you, you if, if you want the if you want the you know good education, good health care, you know, you can vote uh, Democrat. Anybody can vote here. Uh, and, you know, we've got a place for everyone. Yeah. It's the opposite because the basket of deplorables is part and parcel of the I'm with her, blame the voters for not voting for me instead of understanding how the neoliberals are not serving the interests of people. Yeah. And, and just like words, human beings and their ideologies are not fixed and people learn and grow and change. And uh, yeah, the whole point of socialism is to be more open to everyone, yes. uh, despite their flaws or their circumstances. And try yeah, to and, you, and you don't, you know, that does not mean that you cater to right. people's retrograde beliefs. That's On the contrary, exactly right. you say, you know, you, you, you may maybe emphasize things differently depending on where you're campaigning. Hate the but, sinner, love the sinner, baby. Yeah, exactly. But you, you, you say we are the party of you know fair wages across the board, unions, um, you know universal health care, blah blah blah. At the same time, we're against police brutality. We're against the uh, wealth gap. We're against the wage gap, the gender wage gap. You know all of the particular identity issues that goes front and center as well. And in fact, that will show the connections because they understand how capitalism harms them. And if you show that racism is structural, for example, right, and the ways in which that structure that's oppressing them is also specifically, and especially oppressing uh, people of color, they're more likely to understand it. Yeah, Possibly. hopefully, yeah. yeah. And at so, least, you know, you don't need huge margins among this group. But when you look at, you know, Obama's Obama's coalition in 2012 was like one-third white people without a college degree. You just need to peel off enough of them to win. And I think there's, a, you know, you look at uh, the vote on whether to overturn the right-to-work law in Missouri— Missouri, where there's a Republican governor and the Republican supermajority in both houses of the state legislature. And this ballot initiative to overturn this union busting law won by two to one margin. Absolutely crushed it. So there's like there's a constituency, I think, at least theoretically, that is in favor of this kind of politics and maybe even, you know, maybe even has like terrible views on race or gender, but we're willing to set them aside in order to, you know, get the policy goods. But in order to even think about tapping that uh, constituency, you have to offer them something. You have to offer them something like Obama did in 2012 when he ran a really class-heavy campaign in the, in the uh, Great Lakes region. It was like, Mitt Romney's coming for your job. He threw all the steel workers out of work. He's this rapacious capitalist. And... Uh, it's a dog yeah. on the roof. Also. It, it, yeah, <laughs> it won. That Good. was a successful. Yeah, the possibilities are greater than we can imagine if we're open to these kinds of possibilities and, and the ways of uh, building coalitions and being ideologically pure in principle, but uh, not limiting ourselves in the ways in which we group people together to achieve the ends practically in the short term. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, good. Thank you for uh, another lovely discussion. Ah, yes. Tune in next week. Yeah. Be seeing you.